Our passage this morning is Philippians. You didn't guess that, right? Chapter 3, verses 17 through 4, 1. I'm going to read that right now. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 17 and going through 4, 1. There's so much in this passage that I could speak for mm, three or four hours, but I'm leaving here a quarter after, <laughs> then or not. Uh, so you know that it's not going to happen, but let's read this and get started. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's easy when you read this passage, there's, there's a couple of things that just jump right out at me, and I had a hard time getting around it because the thing that really jumped out at me was enemies of the cross. And I wanted to make this all about enemies of the cross. But as you can see in my title, it's not. It's standing firm because it's part of the conclusion. So when we look at this, we've got to put this into context. First of all, we saw in chapter 1 of Philippians, joyful preserving partnership in the gospel. Paul is... Joyful, as we have noticed in past weeks, is one of the key words of this book, joy or joyful. The second chapter, we saw joyful sacrificial service, like Christ. The third chapter was press on by faith in Christ. And then the fourth chapter is going to be much more practical. As you can see, that we are then transitioning from the press on by faith in Christ into the more practical part. So this is a kind of a transition paragraph. So there's a lot of doctrine and a lot of practical stuff that happened in this, this, these verses. It's a good, I'm happy when we divided this up, that verse 1 of chapter 4 kind of fit into this paragraph because it changes the whole focus of looking at this paragraph. It comes with the conclusion of therefore. But that's getting ahead of myself. There's four points that I'm going to be making in this sermon. The first one is follow my example. The second one is enemies of the cross. The third one is going to be our citizenship is in heaven. And the fourth one is stand firm. I also like to use scripture to interpret scripture. I don't like getting up here and expounding on a verse of Scripture without pulling in and showing that Scripture is connected. 
And if we just take a teaching or a doctrine out of one passage without connecting it to all of the New Testament, we have a problem because it could be erroneous. The cults like to do that. They like to take a verse out of context and make a, an issue out of it rather than showing how it not only fits in the context, but showing how it fits in all of Scripture. So when we look at this follow my example, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us, does Paul say this elsewhere? Is this an abnormal thing for him to say? Should we follow his example? Are there reasons to do so? I think there are. One thing I've noticed in the Christian walk, it's different than the Jewish walk. I have a friend at work that converted to Judaism. He was a Presbyterian before, so I don't hold that against him. But he converted to Judaism, and he has all kinds of things that he has to do. He was telling me before uh, Passover, he had to get rid of all the leaven in his house. So what they would do is they would sell all of their leaven to the rabbi. He would buy all the leaven from them. Then they would clean out their cupboards, making sure there's not even a small particle of yeast or anything resembling all the bread, all the rolls, everything has to be out of their house. They would sell it all to the rabbi. Then he would take out a shop vac and shop vac the inside of his cupboards. He would shop vac along the edge of his carpets and in his floors. He would shop vac his furniture. He would vacuum everything and he would dust everything. He would scrub it down. His house was very clean. I said, would you like to come to my house and try that? But he didn't think that was funny. Um, and I said, so what happens to all this leaven when after the Passover? What, what do you do? He says, well, we have to buy it back from the rabbi. I said, uh, and he gets a little bit of profit. He goes, oh yeah, it costs us twice as much. <laughs> I'm thinking, Okay, so the rabbi buys the stuff from you, but he can't have it in his house, so he puts it in a storage place, then he sells it back to you when this is over with. He goes, yes, that's right. I said, okay, I got that. But we, in our life, we don't have this set of rules to go by. This leaven that he had to get rid of, we don't have that situation. What we have, Christianity is different from Judaism in that we have life examples to follow. Christ basically lived on this world, in this world, and the disciples followed him and saw his example, and they lived with others, and we are to follow their example rather than the set of rules that was given to us uh, in the Old Testament. Galatians spends a lot of time saying we are free from the law, and in this freedom, we follow examples rather than um, a written code of precepts and maxims that the Jews have covering every little nuance of life. So how do we know how to live? We know how to live by the Bible. The New Testament is there with the examples of how Paul lived and how Jesus lived. But we also have examples of those around you that hopefully are walking in the pattern that Christ has and that we can follow them. So we should be able to say to each other, follow me 
as I follow Christ. So, even in Philippians, Paul says, how does, first of all, how does Paul live? How do we follow Paul? Paul says in Philippians, this very book, he says in 3.8, all things are lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So as we follow Paul, if we follow his example, the thing that we have to do is all things are lost compared to the value of knowing Christ. So what is the number one thing that Paul has in his life? Knowing Christ. What's the next thing? In chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 of this very book, he says, I press on. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on. So, Spurgeon said that we are prone to engrave our trials in marble and our blessings in sand. I am prone to look at all the difficulties I have in my life and use them as the cornerstone rather than the blessings that Christ has given to me and use that as a cornerstone. My wife isn't here today, so I can talk about her. 1995, she was diagnosed with a debilitating disease when the doctors gave her 10 years, and she would not be with me. It's been 20 years, and I still have her, and I think that is a blessing. So rather than consider that a trial, it is a blessing. And I look at every day as a new day that God has given us together. But rather than engrave that in marble as a trial, I want to engrave it in marble as a blessing. We should look at what we have through Christ and not what we don't have. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, be imitators of me. So he said that before, be imitators of me. How do we do that? If you look in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, he says, we are apostles least of all. We are like men sentenced to death. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are poorly dressed. We labor with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. He says, when we are slandered, we entreat. We are the scum of the world. That's an attitude he has about himself and how he is treated. 1 Corinthians 11. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10:23 says all things are lawful but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, just because it's available and I can do it doesn't mean I should. But eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising questions for ground of conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord and the fullest thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, eat what's set before you without raising question on the ground of conscience. But if somebody says... This has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. The point of this is looking out for your brother or an unbeliever in their conscience before you look out for your own. 
Because in verse 31, he says, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. I don't really want to offend my brother, and I don't want to offend my anybody else. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, 11.1. So he does say this often, imitate me, follow me. Um, verse 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, imitate us. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, he says that Timothy set an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, teaching, exhorting, and do not neglect the gift you have. The, the thing in Timothy that switches is instead of following my example, he is saying, you be an example to others. And if we take this literally, and if we take this appropriately, we are to be an example to others. That's so that the example continues. It didn't die off when the apostles died off. It continues on. So we can say to each other, follow my example as I follow Christ. And what is that example that he's saying? Devoting yourself to public reading of Scripture, teaching and exhorting, and do not neglect the gift you have. There are some who say, and I am one of them, that when you, are, became, you became a believer, you were endowed with a spiritual gift. I don't know what that is. And there's several lists in the New Testament, and I don't believe those lists are exhaustive. But you have been given with a, an ability to serve Christ. Don't neglect it. Set an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Practice your gift. Immerse yourself in it. Keep a close watch on yourself. Persist. Persevere. That's going to be another theme coming up here. Second Timothy he says, You have followed my teaching, and all who live a godly life in Christ... It's going to be rich and have a mansion and drive Rolls Royces, so don't worry about it. No, he says, you're going to be persecuted. You, if you follow my example, will be persecuted. You will go through trials. Continue what you have learned because, as we read in Second Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed profitable, equipped for every good work. So we are to learn to renounce all man-made righteousness and place ourselves under the judgment of the cross and summon to death to sin and summon to death sin and a life to God. That is how we follow Paul. That is how we follow Christ. That is the example given to us. So we are to do that. Follow Christ. Follow Paul.
There we go. Enemies of the cross, verses 18 and 19. First reading this, this is what caught my attention. Paul has repeated this also. He says, I have told you this before, and I'm telling you now with tears. Many walk as enemies of the cross. They, not, they don't only not follow my example. They walk as enemies of the cross. These are in the church as well as out. And this is kind of what struck me. Enemies of the church as well as outside of the church. He has said this even with tears. He's weeping. Stand firm. Watch out for the enemies. And what does he say about them? He says their God is their belly. They have unbridled appetites. Their glory is their shame. Immoral practices. I think we see a lot of that today in something called gay pride. Their mind is on earthly things. They have sensual pursuits. See, Paul had to combat erroneous teachings, and we saw, see this throughout the New Testament, and sub-Christian practices which were destructive of his doctrines of grace and his insistence on highest morality. What does he call them in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2? He calls them, look out for the dogs the evildoers, those that mutilate the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 6, I'm quoting all these scriptures, and you can write them down and look them up, look them up at your leisure later. Um, because we have to see that they tie in. He doesn't just say this in Philippians. He says it in Corinthians 6-9, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice sexual immorality, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, swindlers. Paul is tearful about their destruction. He's not proud of it. He's not happy that they're going to be destroyed. In Romans chapter 1, there's a list of what God gave men up to. The idea is that God doesn't always strive with man, but he gives them over to their desires. If you look at chapter 1, verses, let's start, well, 28. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. There is more about the lie back in Revelation, when people will believe the lie more than they will believe the truth, and what happens to this world. But here, they exchange the truth for a lie, and worship the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He talks about homosexuality. Verse 28, and they did not see to fit and acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind, so to do whatever ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
in not following Paul and the apostles and not obeying Christ and Scripture, God gives them up. Several times we read where God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. One last point I have on this enemies of the cross is what Jude says. I like Jude. It's a tough book. It's short. But you can spend a summer meditating on Jude. And in Jude, verse 3 and 4, he says... Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Jude says, contend for the faith. We're in a fight here. So as we are thinking about the enemies of the cross, the word enemies is a word that was specifically used by Paul and the Holy Spirit in this passage. They're not our friends of the cross. They are enemies of the cross. They need to hear the truth of the gospel. And Jude says, contend for the faith. How can you contend for the faith if you don't know it, you don't study it, you're not familiar with it? Contend for it. How do you do that? I think the next point is our citizenship is in heaven. The attitude of the believer is one of expectation centered on the return of Christ. So now we're going to get positive. I was talking a little bit negative here about contending for the faith and the enemies of the cross. And now it is, our citizenship is in heaven. The attitude of the Christian when undergoing trials is one of expectation centered on the return of Christ as Savior. No matter what your trial is, some of you have big trials. Some of you have smaller trials. It doesn't matter the trial. My cars broke down a couple of weeks ago. It's a trial. It's frustration. The attitude is not, oh, woe is me, but the attitude is, it happens. How can I glorify Christ in this? What can I do to take care of this because my focus is not on my cars or on my illnesses or on, on other things that have happened. Our focus is on the future. Colossians 1.5 says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. When we continue on with looking at this, we see that our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies. 
Transform means to change the appearance of our moral, moral littleness to resemble the greatness of our Savior. It's amazing to me that when we see him, we will be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And once we see him as he is, we will take and be transformed to resemble him even more than we can right now. We await a Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The power he has is the superhuman energy that works for our salvation and for our glory. Of this power, Paul says, I was made a minister of it by the working of his power. We all know of Paul's conversion. It was powerful. We know that in Ephesians chapter 3, 7, I got it. We've got to go there. Um, because it's not only for us individually, it's also for us corporately. And I think that brings it out in Ephesians. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given to me by the working of his power. And then we're going to go on to verse 6. This mystery that the Gentiles are fellow, fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So it's the power that God, through all, has put us together. Each of us was giving a measure of Christ's gift for all of us. This church in 4-7, there we go. I'm, I'm looking at this thinking, I'm missing something. I, I was, I'm sorry. But the grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. In 4 verse 6 it says, well, in 4 verse 1 it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humble humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. But the grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The point that I'm trying to make here is the power that God used to convert Paul is the power that is used for you and given your gift because we are all to use our, the grace that is given to us in the body because we are all united as one. So our citizenship is in heaven. We work it out here on earth. We are looking for um, Christ's return. We are looking for the fact that we will be transformed by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So therefore, stand firm. 
my joy, my crown. <clears throat> if you've ever led somebody to the Lord, it's a very joyful experience. If you ever have taken somebody and mentored them in their Christian walk and watched them grow in the faith, it's a very joyful experience. If you've done that several times, your joy is expanded increased, multiplied, all the more when you see that happen. <clears throat> so Paul call, calls them my crown. Crown is used in Scripture a lot. Um, it's a reward in the future. Um, qualifications for crown varies depending on the crown. But all who meet the qualifications get a crown. Paul calls the people there in Philippi his crown. He also says there's in Timothy, he calls it a crown of righteousness for all who love his appearance. I think my mom's going to get that because she was always looking forward to the return of the Lord. In, James, in Corinthians, we have run a race so that you can receive crown that will last forever. The idea there is to discipline ourselves. You can't run a race without discipline. But if you endure, you will get a crown that will last forever. James says there's a crown for those who persevere under trial. Peter says the faithful elders who love and lead the flock well will get a crown of joy. Revelation says there's a crown of life to the faithful. Revelation also says, persevere so that no money will take your crown. There is, in Revelation, also a, a scene where there's 24 elders around the throne. I think that number is, um, is not literal. I think it's metaphorical. But the elders are around, and they all have a crown of gold. And then we see... And also, at the end of that scene, the elders and everybody cast their crowns before him who sits on the throne, which is Christ. So crowns are given to us as a reward for persevering, for being faithful, to enduring, to um, leading well, to living well. The purpose of the crown is a reward for that. And what we're going to do with a crown is give it to Christ in worship and adoration because we do this all for his glory anyways. But then he says, stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. I can't say that enough. In Isaiah chapter 7, there's a big two armies coming in to defeat Jerusalem. And the king Ahaz in Jerusalem is all worried and befuddled. And uh, Isaiah goes up to him and says, don't pay any attention to those smoldering flax weeds. And, and the king goes, what do you mean? That's Syria. And that is Ephraim. Two major kingdoms here. They're coming after us, and we don't have very good fortifications, and we're not very well financed here. We can't afford this war. And he says, to him, if you will not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. 
I pull in the Old Testament just to show that we are always being exhorted to stand firm. We are always being exhorted, like in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because your labor for the Lord is not in vain. In Philippians, stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side, one faith for the gospel. That's Philippians 1.27. Thessalonians, stand firm, hold fast. James, stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. This is um, one of the doctrines of grace that we hold to. The perseverance of the saints means that those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end will have been truly born again. It's a double... Uh, take on that. Uh, only Christians will last, stay, persevere to the end, and only those who persevere to the end will be Christians. So that if we see people fall away, um, when I was in Bible school, the chuckle was, well, if they fall away, they weren't Christians after all. But that doesn't mean we don't pursue them. That doesn't mean we don't go after them. That doesn't mean we say, you haven't lost your salvation. What that means is they never had it, and we go after them with the gospel, the gospel and the good news. So that's why persevering to the end is very important. Paul says in Colossians, again, if you continue in the faith. See, Paul didn't know, and we don't know, the actual state of every person's heart. There are people who profess to believe, they baptize, they join a church, they become leaders, but they never had saving faith. So how do we distinguish them? We don't. How do we not give them false assurances? That's a problem we have when we come here is we don't want to give you false assurances because we don't know your heart. I don't know my heart sometimes. One way we know is we continue to the end. Therefore, when you come here, you should hear the gospel continually. Jesus Christ came into the world as a man, died on the cross, rose again the third day according to the scripture, ascended, and lives on high, interceding for us. That gospel you should hear continually. We encourage, we rebuke, we teach, we discipline, we love each other to remain in the flesh, to remain in the faith. Excuse me. Slip. We have to encourage one another. We have to love one another. We encourage one another. So what insurances do I have that I am genuinely saved? Well, the first one is, do I have a present trust in Christ as my Savior? Yes. Okay, good. Is there evidence of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Yes. Good. Do we see growth, a pattern of growth in our Christian life? Am I further along the road today than I was? Can't always see it on a day-by-day -day basis, but was I, am I more than last year or than five years ago or last month? Do I see a pattern of growth? 
Because in our sanctification, there's going to be ups and downs. We're not always going to be on an uphill road. There will be valleys. But in our sanctification, as we work out our salvation, there will be a change in us. As we imitate Christ, as we imitate Paul. So what we need to do is follow Paul's example. Beware of the enemies of the cross, because we are citizens of heaven. Our hope is in heaven. And we are to stand firm in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your gospel. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your life. Thank you for the fact that we can follow Christ. We can follow Paul through these examples. Help us to stand firm as we live our life for you. Amen.